Take your Bible this morning, turn to Joshua chapter 1. That's where we are going to be again in our study. Uh, this morning we are going to be in a text that takes us to a level of uh, an understanding of Joshua's first initial taking of command. Now of all the things that have occurred up to this point, the reading of Deuteronomy, the understanding of the gravity of the situation, becoming on the brink of the promised land, the transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua, Joshua now finally makes his first debut, in a sense, as the acting leader of the children of Israel under the authority of God. Well, how many of you uh, are, are big planners? Like, you like to plan, okay? You go on vacation, and you prepare for stuff, and you, you know, as our kids get older, you know, you, you say, all right, pack your own bags. And that could be really good, you know, before it's like you packed everything for them. Because you knew when they were little, they, they would forget this, they would forget that. But there comes a particular point in their lives as a young adult, you say, pack your own bag. But then you really realize afterward they had no idea what they were doing. Or you're one of those people who were like, oh, let's pack quick. And you're one of those late night packers. Like, you don't need to pack except for like maybe the night before at like 1 a.m. And you can fit everything that you possibly want in some small backpack. And you bring it out and they, somebody says to you, are you ready? Like, yeah, let's go. Like, you've got everything you need in there. Like, preparation is absolutely key about on anything that we do, whether it's preparing for a vacation, preparing to plan uh, to buy a house, to prepare to plan to buy a car, to figure out what church you're going to be in. Planning and preparation is one of the most key principles of the Christian life. If we live our Christian life by the seat of our pants and simply say, well, I'll just figure out that tomorrow, and you never plan, how are you going to grow? What are you going to do? Where do you need to be? Who do you need to serve? I'll tell you what will happen. Is that the idea of serving, the idea of following God will be an afterthought to you. And it was, it was God's desire, as well as Joshua's, that the people would plan and prepare for what they were about to witness in the promised land. Now this morning as we take a look at the text, and we will get out of Joshua chapter 1 at some particular point. We're going to get out of it today. Okay? And we're going to start jumping a little faster because the stories get a little bit more larger and a little more complex. But, but think of Joshua chapter 1, if you would, as a preamble to the way that the people of Israel would need to remind themselves to follow God, to a reminder to the leader, be strong and courageous, and a reminder to the people and the leaders, God's presence is with us, and therefore we do not need to be afraid. This is so important that we get all of these reminders in our text before us today. Uh, I think we're, we're going to unfold that this kind of idea, this main idea, is going to come out in our, in our passage today, that we ought to be people who prepare to obey by remembering your commitments so that you may persevere for the glory of God. Okay? That means, by the way, preparation is critical for you. Okay? It's not just about, uh, you think about preparation, and here we have the Lord's table sitting in front of us. I reminded you a week ago, we're going to be taking this. 
You know, so often we even come to the house of the worship of God, of the living God, and taking of the ordinances, and we, we all of a sudden get here on Sunday morning, we walk into the auditorium, and we go, oh, we're taking the Lord's table. It's like, yes, and then like, oh no. Did you prepare? Are you ready to commune with the presence of the living God who, who is with us, and desires for each one of us to take this so serious. And without a level of preparation, we have to actually have to prepare to remember. Now, the older you get, and I think most of our elderly crew in our, in our auditorium today could say, you'll, you'll hear this at, oh man, I'm getting older. Give me, cut me some slack. I don't remember. And they'll fill in the blank. You realize that young or old, without a level of preparation, you often begin to forget the things that sometimes are very valuable to you. Preparation is key so that we can recall in remembrance what God does for this, for this purpose. Christians, we got to persevere. There is a calling upon our lives in the day and age in which we live of perseverance for the glory of God, not for the exaltation of you or any one individual church, but the very glory of God so that we don't lose focus as we do what God wants us to do here in this world and living the lives that he has called us to live. In the passage before us today, we're going to talk about three particular elements that you have in your outline this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about preparation. We're going to talk a little bit about promises, and we'll go take a trip down memory lane back with the children of Israel at a very particular moment, and we're going to end with what it looks like and the commitment to persevere. Let's take a look at this very first section. I'm only going to read verses 10 and 11, then we'll unpack a little bit of these principles uh, that are for us today. Joshua chapter 1, verse 10, here's what he says. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp, and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now here's something very interesting. Joshua calls all of his officers of the people. When you have a people about, of a million and a half to two million people camped on the, on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now just tuck this away in your mind because you're going to carry this with you through the course of this study. The children of Israel have been wandering about in the wilderness, camping from here to there, and moving when, the, when, the, when God wanted them to move, and then resetting up camp. And if you've ever went camping, you know this is quite a large endeavor. Pulling up tents, taking down tents, getting everybody in marching orders. But there was something going on in the backdrop. You always had these people in the promised land, the land of Canaan. Okay, You have always had these people thinking, there's a million and a half to two million people over there. I wonder if they all of a sudden decided to get up and come over here. I wonder what would happen. See, that's always being lived out as the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness because remember, these, these people in the Canaanite land, in the land of promise, they had already had 12 spies come in. I mean, they could actually think to themselves, this could happen. And now the people of Israel are there. Joshua takes command, and he, and, he, and he orders the officers to go and tell every company that is under there, every tribe, every officer of every tribe would go back to their own tribe and say, all right, listen up. It's happening. 
we are not just picking up our tents to move just to any forsaken wilderness experience anymore. We're going over. We're going to the promised land. And I know Moses is gone, but Joshua's here. Moses has passed the mantle to Joshua. He's going to lead us, so pack your bags. We're going to get ready. Possession of what you have long been foretold is imminent. Oh, could you imagine? But the excitement and the nervousness that would happen. This isn't like just the, uh, hey, I'm excited to go on vacation. It's like, I'm excited to go, but there's giants over there. I don't know of anybody who would be put in that predicament that as a mother and a father and, a, and an individual now of young children, in that mental preparation, when he said, prepare your provisions, because in a short period of time, we are going over. And in one sense, we could say it like this, once the campaign starts, it will not stop until we take possession of the land that God has given to us. And we commit ourselves to that. And so every officer would go back to their tribe and they would say, get yourselves ready. Get your children ready. Pack your provisions. I know you've been, you, the presence of God has been with us. I know you've been supplied for by manna, by quail, by water out of the rock, by all kinds of different means. You've been sustained. And I think all of that backdrop is supposed to say to us, if he sustained us then, then he'll sustain us now. So don't be afraid. Come, get your children. But every father, every father likely, was looking at the eyes of his little children going, this is scary. We're going to get up. We're going to get ready. We're going to go over. We're not even sure exactly. We're supposed to go over the Jordan, but we know what time of year it is. We're going to leave that for a moment. We'll come back to it. But we are on the brink. Could you imagine as a parent saying to your child, everything that we have told you about for the last 25 years of your life is about to come true. It was always true and it was always assured. But you, son, you, daughter, you will possess the very thing that so many who of you have gone before you had yet to see Long to see, but because of their disobedience, we're unable to see. I think there's a preparation beyond just provision and gather up your belongings. Preparation looks like something very, very specific, and I want to challenge you to think about preparation in three different aspects this morning. A preparation of the mind. You know, practically we understand we have to gather our belongings, but all of these New Testament passages that talk about gird up the loins of your mind, prepare your minds for battle, there is a mental preparation that goes into the everyday Christian living that without that preparation, I think and believe that many Christians are living a very mindless endeavor. They just do what they do because they've always been told what they've been told. They go where they go because that's what they've always done. But see, there's a preparation of the minds that says, do I really, am I really doing what I'm doing right now because I genuinely believe that the God of the universe, the eternal, all-existing, 
filled with truth, omnipotent, all-powerful God, he alone deserves my allegiance. See, without that mental preparation, you go into any level of, of, of life and you don't reaffirm your allegiance to the king of kings. And all of a sudden, your mind begins to dwell on other things. Your mind begins to look at other people. It looks at what they have. It looks at the fears of the world. It looks at the fears of all the things that could exist and possibly exist. And we're in panic and we're in fear and there's all kinds of anxiety. And then we wonder, what are we supposed to do? It's at these moments, Christians, that mental preparation has to, has to move us to prayer. Prayer for the Christian is a lifeline that exhibits such a mental preparation that says, God, I want what you want. I want your name hallowed in all the earth. I need you for my very sustenance. I can't live another day without you. Mental preparation exhibits itself in the way we pray and the frequency of our prayer. If you're going to a small group, that's what we're covering this week, the importance of prayer within the community. This is an anchor point for our minds, but mental preparation is absolutely critical. But it doesn't just stop there. See, because the more you prepare your mind mentally, what happens is you also realize that you have to prepare your, your affections as well. See, it's not just about, do I know what I know? It's about, do I love what I actually know? You know, there were so many different children of Israel, and by the way, don't, don't think in your mind that a million and a half to two million people existed across the eastern side of the Jordan River and that all of them were believers. Genuinely, they weren't. They were all part of the people of the nation of Israel, but not all the nation of Israel were genuine. They were constantly called to say, prepare your minds, prepare your provisions, prepare your affections. Do you love the living God? See, that's an entirely different question. I can be here and I can open my Bible and I can have my devotions and I can listen to podcasts and I can be involved in, in all kinds of people's lives, but do I love God and do I love other people genuinely? There's a big difference between that. Because if you ever had one of these things where you, you realize that it's, it's tempting for you, even in the midst of a conversation, to be like listening to someone, perceiving as if you care, and in your own, in your own mind, in your own heart, you're thinking like, you just won't shut up. It's just all about you, isn't it? You had those conversations? And in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, what is wrong with me? Do I love this person? Is this moment sovereignly orchestrated by a providential and sovereign God? Am I present with people? Because we are frail, because we are human, we have to grapple with what goes on in the mind behind the closed doors of our own flesh and say, do I love what God loves? Do I hate what God hates? You prepare the mind, which then, by the way, equally helps you to prepare your affections. Because it can't be just about some intellectual knowledge. I can't come every Sunday and fulfill all your intellectual whims and answer every intellectual or theological question and then you go away going, yes, no, I need to know more. 
I love that you want that. But I'm always going to challenge you as your pastor to say, by what you know ought to then equal or flow into what you love. For preparation of the mind is an equal calling to a preparation of the affections of love. This is why Deuteronomy 6 said in the great Shema, the Lord our God is one. Teach these things. What are they teaching them? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. See, love and intellect always were interconnected. Because it's the two of these things and the interconnection of the mind, the affections, and the will that always drive the choices that we make. You believe what you believe, therefore you love what you love, therefore you will do what you do. And if you might be sitting there saying, why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, I can tell you this, it's because you're loving something and you're believing something. That, whatever you're doing, did not happen accidentally for you. That wasn't like, oops, I sinned. Or, oh, wow, I'm actually praising God. That came because of deliberate, intentional preparation. That is what Joshua was calling the people to on the eastern side of the Jordan. Prepare your provisions, yes, practically, but prepare your mind because you will see the wonders of the living God who has constantly protected you. This is exactly, by the way, when we think about this text uh, in, in our verses, even as, as we think today, 1 Peter chapter 1, take this down, I want you to read it later, but listen to what it says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded, setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. A preparation of the mind flows into a preparation for what you will love and if you, don't, if you don't prepare to love the right things, you will find the passions of your own fleshly heart will lead you astray. They will lead you to godlessness, godless actions, godless thoughts. It'll, it'll lead you to being around godless people in a way that you are influenced by them instead of the other direction. Christian, it is our calling, as Joshua called these people, to prepare their mind for what they would experience for us in our day, in our age, to prepare your mind. Christian, how well do you do that through the week? Is it just about what you read and checking off the box and making sure you go through all the, the ritualistic perspectives that you were brought up with that all of a sudden become legalistic in nature and you, and you think back, uh, you know, four hours later and you think to yourself, I don't even remember what I read. Like if you don't remember it, then what good is it? If you're not trying to figure out ways to remind and recall to your mind the things that you ought to be prepared to do, then quickly and easily you will fall into temptation because your mind is not prepared to fight. There's the whole reason of the armor of God is for a defensive and active mechanisms in the Christian's life to say, I'm ready, I'm prepared. You walk out of your house without your shield of faith, you are in trouble. <laughs> and that's for every single one of us, no matter the age. 
prepare your minds. That is the call that Joshua continues to give. Now, he wants us to go from there because there's so much going on in the life of the people of Israel that they would recall in their wilderness wanderings. Now, I want to move to the next text where we talk about preparation. Now he reminds a very particular group of people about some promises that were made. Now, I want, to, I want us to notice them as we look in Joshua chapter 10 um, and we think through these particular, uh, these particular verses. Notice this in Joshua chapter 1, uh, verse number 12. And he says, And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that the Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Until the Lord gives you rest, gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. Now, let me just, it's so important for us as we look at this, and there's so much, there's such a vast reservoir of various memories that the children of Israel would have, but for some reason, Moses, uh, Joshua, as he wrote this, recalled the very important essence of a very particular situation. And the situation is found in Numbers chapter 32. You could turn there, but I'm going to fast forward us through this situation, and I'm going to bring up a couple of texts that we'll read along the way, but you could go back in Numbers 32 and get the whole account. Well, the account started with this reality that is, the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, various, various people groups that either came out against them or God's calling upon their life to go and deal with them. Two of them were the kingdom of Sihon and Og, just on the eastern side of the Jordan, representing on the northern part of this by the green and the white. In the plains of Moab, and this is where the people of Israel were at, they were spread all across the eastern side of the Dead Sea, just across the Jordan. And in Israel's history, they go in and they wipe out these two kings, which is also reflected on, by the way, if you just want another text to reflect on, is found in Deuteronomy 3, where Moses is re re bringing to mind and recalling for them the seriousness of this. Now, they wipe out this entire area, and there were a couple of tribes, two and a half tribes, okay? Because if you remember, uh, these two particular tribes, Reuben and Gad, came, they were the text tells us in Numbers 32, as we look at it, that they were people had a great amounts of livestock. They looked out over these plains that they had now won. They had looked at the fields, the areas that their livestock could dwell, and they thought to themselves, this is a good land. This is a great place for all of our animals, all of our livestock. Like, we could live here, and we could be okay. In fact... I think we ought to ask for that. So these particular tribes that are found, now you can't read that lettering, but on the bottom side, what you'll notice is you have Reuben on the very southern spot, you have Gad in, packed into the middle, and then you have the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now if you just remember just the tribal perspectives, the half-tribe of Manasseh, why a half? Well, because Joseph had two sons and he was part of the 12, and so his, his portion, because he died in Egypt, got split between his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so the half-tribe of Manasseh went along with Reuben and Gad and said, we think this is a good land. Let's stay here. 
they go to Moses one particular day after this happened. And here's what they said in Numbers 32, verses 6 and 7. Uh, six, uh, and seven. They, they asked for it, and Moses says this to them. Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you disgrace the heart of the people of Israel from going over into land that the Lord has given to them? Now, something happened at a moment in time in their history. All of a sudden, uh, these leaders of the tribe of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said to themselves, I think this is pretty good. So they say, let's go talk to Moses and Eliezer. So they go to Moses and the high priest, and they said, how about you give us this land? Now, Moses' response is the leader's like, this, this is right from the Hebrew. What? What are you thinking? Do you realize what's at stake here? You are telling me you want to dwell here when God says that we can dwell there? In fact, there's something bigger here. He's saying, are you going to discourage the people? Moses is thinking to himself, I have seen this before. I saw this when the 12 came back and 10 of them began to discourage the people because the, tr- the Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, what was at stake is them saying this to the, all the other tribes. We are now going to rest. Happy fighting. We're going to be over here in our cushy area where we've now built up homes and our children are now growing and our grandkids are now coming over. But yeah, well, we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you, though, along the fight. Moses says, no. He says to the people, you, he says to these particular tribes, don't discourage this people. Now, what is at stake here is them listening to obedience to the very words of God so that all of a sudden, all the other tribes might have gotten the temptation to say, you know, they're kind of right. We got a whole big chunk in the plains of Moab. We could just stay here. And they would have forgotten all the things that had transpired in the wilderness. He says to them, don't discourage the people. Now, just principally, as we think about the power that takes place when a person discourages another person from doing what God wants them to do. It's powerful. Do you realize that the more people say, hey, I don't think living the Christian life, either by, by word or by action itself, discourages other people to live the Christian life. Realize that discouragement Uh, is impactful in people's lives. In fact, it can have such an overflowing impact that all of a sudden, a whole million people can say, ah, I don't think we're going. I think we should head back to, to Egypt. Don't, just be aware, Christian, that the smallest amounts of causing another person to stumble and deviate from following the truth has major, major ramifications, not just to you, but to an entirety of a people group. And in this case, it was Israel, but I would principally say that that's also true, that if all of a sudden we, we do not follow the things God wants us to follow, we can discourage a whole entire community of believers to be asking the question, eh, is it worth it? He says, don't discourage them, but he doesn't just stop there. 
He also says this in Numbers 13. He says, And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. Now, this is Moses talking. Moses is saying, don't you do what what happened before. Don't have the ramifications because the last time people discouraged us from going into the promised land, do you remember what we had to do? 40 years of wilderness wandering? I think principally what what he's saying and recording is, let's not repeat that. That was not enjoyable. People had to die Some had to be taught lessons. Others' faith was being forged for a moment like this. And he's reminding them that God's anger was kindled against those people who called and and discouraged the people from doing what God wanted them to do. And he calls us, he says, don't do evil in the sight of the Lord. He follows with this. And he says, and behold, you have risen in your father's place and a brood of sinful men to increase still the more fierce anger of the Lord against all Israel. What he's asking them is like, your fathers died and couldn't inherit the land. Are you telling me that you didn't learn a stinking thing from them? That's also in the Hebrew. The reality is, he's asking them, haven't you learned your lesson? of the gravity of leading people astray when we wandered as a people group and we're now here and God wants to give it to us, don't do this. And what will happen if you do? He says this in, in, in Numbers thirty-two fifteen. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. Like he's reminding them. Don't think that God doesn't have consequences for disobedience. There is a level that the reminder has to constantly be heard and ringing in our ears that you don't do, you don't sin against the living God without a level of consequential components that follow. Yes, God is merciful. There is no doubt. He often does not give us all that we deserve. But I can tell you this, is that he is a God of justice. And if he's a God of justice, then consequences often have to take place. And we ought to hear that in our own ears as Christians today and say, he's watching the way I think. He's seeing what I love. He knows what I'm doing on Friday night. He knows when I say I'm over here, And yet, I'm really over here. He knows all of these things, and he knows when your mind is not fixed on honoring him, and he knows when your affections start to wane, and the passions of your own sinful flesh become so enamoring to you that you get caught up in the world. He knows. It ought to just cause us to step back for a moment as a Christian and go, whew, I'm going to give accountable, I'm going to be accountable for every thought, deed, and action, and desire that enters into my mind. He says, Moses said, don't destroy these people, don't discourage them, don't lead them astray. And in response to that, these Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, 
we see what you're saying. <laughs> but so that you know that we're serious, we'll go fight. And we're not going to try to take our rest earlier because I think what Moses is trying to get across is there ain't nobody that's getting a full rest until everybody rests. That's what he's saying. You want to experience your rest prematurely and say, hey, pray for you as you're going over there? No, 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 that's not how this is going down. I'll be gracious and merciful. This is a good land, and I'll be willing to allow you to have it. But I want you and all of your men of valor to go before the people of Israel so that they know that you have not bailed on them. And they have escaped a level of the conquest and that you have not cared for your brothers and for their tribes and for their families and for their children and that you will fight as if this was your family until they get a rest, until their houses are built. And then you can go back and you can go rest and you can go back to the land that I'd be willing to give you. I just notice this just by a, a statement of facts. This is somewhat interesting, I think. Notice the amount of fighting men that was given in the, in the, in the census. Reuben, 43,730. Gad, 40,500. Manasseh, 52,700. 136,930 men, 20 and over. This is not a small group of people. And that's just two and a half tribes. And now they're going to go before, and they're going to say, you know what, we're going to fight for you. We're going to go with you, but notice what they're also having to do. You realize that all 136,930 men would be leaving the eastern side before they crossed over the Jordan River, saying to themselves, all the, all the mighty men of valor are gone. Who will protect our family? Who will protect our children against marauding kings and people who would come to displace us again? They not only, they had to trust that the land that, that they were going to go fight for their brothers and sisters and the land that God was so gracious to give them and to their family that they were leaving their families in the very hands and the presence of God and that there would be families to come back to when all the fighting was over. That was an act of faith. And these men stood up and said, we'll do it. We'll go before. And we're going to watch these men enter into the promised land uh, with the children of Israel ready to fight well, their families stay behind, and they, and they continue to act in faith. I think it's interesting here because as he recalls this, here's just from an application sense, I want us to just park here just for a, just for a, mo a brief moment because we often hear this verse. I bet I could say it and you could finish it. Be sure your sin will find you out. Do you realize that this is the passage where that's found? This is the context from which that was given. In Numbers 32, 23, it says, But if you do not do so, behold, you will have sinned against the Lord, then be sure your sin will find you out. Now, what he's saying to them is, you don't want to fight? You don't think you want to go? You want to be a guy who hides in your tent, and all of a sudden everybody else has crossed over the Jordan, and all of a sudden you peek your head out of the tent and said, Whoo, I made it? You just lost, because you're not going to make it. Because the God of heaven who knows all things knows this and don't think that your sin won't be found out. Christian, in all of our lives we are tempted to think that we can somehow sin and hide it from the eyes of the very living God. 
He is so present. His, his gaze is so permeating that it, nothing, can I just repeat that? Nothing escapes his gaze. No thought, no desire, nor action, nothing. Like, there's nothing that you're doing that, that, that all of a sudden he's going, oh, well, that surprises me. He knows our hearts. If you're sitting here this morning and all of a sudden, even as a Christian, you've gotten yourself in, in, the, in, the, in the constraints of sin and all of a sudden you think, you're saying to yourself, ah, but nobody knows. See, you're already fooled. He already knows. And in much like the, the description here, that Moses says to this group of people, be sure your sin will find you out. Christians, it will find us out, whether it may not be on this earth, but at one day when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, you will give an account and it will be found out. It is already known. So live that way. Live as if the thoughts that you have in your mind will be seen by the omnipresent God. Are they holy? Are they pure? We live in such a sexualized culture that all of these thoughts and things that go on, you can hardly pass a billboard, you can hardly go to a place where your mind isn't assaulted by some nature, those kinds of things. Is your mind holy? Is your mind pure? Are your desires genuine? Are they consistent with what the word says? Be sure, Christian, that our sin, if we hide it, it will find us out. I always found it interesting as, as a parent, you know, when you, when you deal with various things, and every, every child at one particular point at a time or another lies. Yes, I know all of you have done it too. If I went through the Ten Commandments, you'd get it. And all of a sudden, they think they could hide it. And you know what happens when you lie? Then you've got to tell another lie to cover up the lie and another lie to cover up the lie. And then we always use this. Be sure your sin will find you out. Christian, if your life is a sham this morning and you're just naming the name of Jesus Christ because that's what the thing seems to do that, that you think should be happening but your heart isn't in it, be sure your sin will find you out. If you're a Christian and all of a sudden you think that you can just sin certain things and it's no, no problem, I don't need to repent, I don't need to recall them to my mind, be sure your sin's going to find you out. There ought to be a gravity to the way that you live your Christian life. He's saying to these people, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Reuben, Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, don't you go back on what you said. All these principles in Matthew 5, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, where he said, let your oaths be sure. Be honest people. Honest dealings. Don't go back for the sake of your brothers. Let your eyes be fixed. Make sure that you understand that unity is important. Joshua knew what he was doing. In fact, all of this count in Numbers 32 was said you can read it in Deuteronomy and in Numbers. It was said in the ears of Joshua so that when Moses passed on, it wouldn't be forgotten. And the new leader who had now taken up the mantle had now said, I remember, and I want you to remember, I know what you promised. And I'm not going to let you disunify the people. Make good on your promise. What that says to us members here when we make promises and covenants to each other to be part of the body of Christ don't sit back and take that thing lightly. Don't come to the Lord's table and all of a sudden say, oh, I so want to love God and love other people. 
but I'm so frustrated with half of everyone that I meet? Is your, is your covenant that you made as members and Christians to one another, does that mean something to you? Let it mean something. Be loyal, be devoted to the King of Kings. That's what, that's what Joshua was reminding these particular individuals. Now as we think about this, and we look at this, vast, this last section, notice in verse 16. It says, and they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded all that you commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Notice, he's talking about perseverance. What is it going to take to persevere? You better pay attention to the very words of God and show obedience to it. Joshua was called to do this as a leader. The people were called to do this. Now notice, it says, and they. They is now all of the officers, by the way, not just Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribes of Manasseh. All of the officers that would be sent back to the tribes to tell them to participate in in provision, to make ready, because they're going. They all come back and they say, What you've commanded us all, we will do. Joshua, we will follow you like we followed Moses. Now, this is one of the things that I think is so fascinating about the person of Joshua. You know, you could record, you know, he had the way of recording in the language of, say, like, put a little parentheses, and he could have said something like, hey, we'll follow you like we followed Moses. And he could have put this little parentheses and said, and that worked out really well. So I'm really looking forward to all this. But in his leadership, his grace as a leader didn't come and throw it in their face. He didn't go, like, as we obeyed Moses, we'll obey you. (laughs) I mean, carry on. (laughs) He, He hoped the best. He believed that if they were truly and genuinely followers of the living God, that they would cross over the Jordan, then they wouldn't do what they did before. But here's the mark of a real incredible leader. He didn't throw throw it in their face. He hoped for the best because he prepared his own mind. He reminded them of their commitments, and now he, he exemplified it in his life, and he said, then let's do it together. Let's go and follow the Lord. Let's believe in his promises. And he will, he will lead us to a place of rest. Joshua, and one of the most incredible leaders in the Old Testament conquest, I think this is what he was doing. Even though he knew what the people were like, he had traveled with Moses, he had seen their rebellion, he had seen their discouragement, Joshua could sit back and say, I hope that's true, and I'm going to believe that. But my hope has never been in you. My hope has never been in you and whether you'd conjure up the strength and mental preparation to finally obey the living God. God said what he would do and he said he would give us this land. And I think in his own mind, I can't speak for him even though I have the same name. He said, I was here before. God promised it then. And that promise is as true today as it was when he gave it to me 40 years ago. 
and I'll anchor my soul to the promise of the living God who does all things and will never change. And I want you to follow him with me. And if you're genuine, then come. Believe him. See the wonders of the Lord. Follow me, Joshua would say, as I'm following the living God who will be with us, whose presence is always before us so that we could do this. Joshua could say to the people, only be strong and courageous. And I'll end with this. You know, all throughout the book of, the, of Joshua, you're going to hear a couple repetitive themes. Rest and presence. Without God's presence, there is no rest, is there? Without God's presence, it even makes it even harder to do and live and do all the things that we've been called to do. I'm reminded of that, even just last night. 10 o'clock in the evening, my daughter, who's in college, calls, and somebody decides that they, she's stopped at a light, and somebody comes and rear-ends her, doesn't even stop whatsoever, and demolishes her car. That's not the call you want at 10 o'clock if you're a pastor and you're ready to preach the next day. And I'm thinking, you know, I hear the words, and I, and I hear she finally gets out, and, I, and, and she says to me, and this is about, this is one of those things that as a dad and as a father, you just, you just want to like go through the phone and get there. She says, I'm all alone. Like, you guys used to be here, but I'm all alone. I'm in the middle of the road, and I don't know what to do. And, you know, like, at that particular moment as a dad, you're thinking, like, what's the fastest flight? How can I get there? I, my bike's not going to take me as fast. The, the car's not going to be too quick. Like, what do we do? It is the presence of God that your soul can rest, that he protects the people that you care so much about. That all of a sudden, when, when, when all of those families got left on the east side of the Jordan, that those mothers and those children would say, they'll come back to us. We'll see them again. See, it's the presence of the living God that gives you a rest for your soul. I'll tell you what, without the, re without the presence of the living God and my soul anchored with that, I'll tell you what, last night I wouldn't have gotten any sleep. But I remember just going to bed just saying, God, you're just protecting when I can't be there as her earthly father. You, as her heavenly father, are, are showing such immense protection. I could stand in awe of the acts of the living God that she walked away and I wasn't getting a phone call saying that somebody had died or that she's in the hospital. See, believers, the more that we understand the presence of the word of the living God, guess where you can experience more of it? It's being in here. It's not through experiencing things. It's, it's when we have to experiencing them, experience them. What truths will then occupy our mind? God is fully capable. And his presence is so vast that he will never leave you or forsake you, Christian. He will protect every person, every loved one, whether here or whether they're serving in the military abroad. Christian, he loves his people. He loves those who have repented and trusted in him. Anchor your soul to his presence.
and I guarantee you will find rest for your soul. And the more you find his presence in the word, the more rest you will experience for a soul that is often weary on an earthly journey that we have to face today. But he will give you the strength each and every day to accomplish the things that he wants you to accomplish. Don't hide your sin. Sin keeps you away from the presence of God. Confess it, he'll forgive you every single time. You know why he does it? Because he wants to be close. He wants you to experience the presence of God. And sin will, will push you away from that. Be serious. Make mental preparations this week to serve better, to be stronger than you ever were before. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, your protection is immense. Lord, your presence. When we can't be at places, but you can be. Lord, it's so helpful to us. Lord, you'd help even protect my mind from going and worrying and being fearful. And you reminded me, as, it, as you used the truth that I even prepared this week, that it was for my soul that you are the God of presence. And no one can ever take that away from us. You've given that to each one of us. And you said you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for doing that, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.